Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together at, right here at Central Campus, along with others meeting in our, at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in Bearspaw, and South Calgary. You know, it's good to be back after being away from Calgary a few weeks this summer, and I trust you too have had an enjoyable and a restful summer, and, and uh, you've done a little bit of recalibrating for the faith adventures that God has in mind for you um, this coming year, because He does have some faith adventures in mind for you. Uh, now, I don't know about you, but I have found it very helpful, in fact, very meaningful, uh, to, um, uh, to read daily in my quiet time from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you've probably noticed that we're doing something similar in our worship services. We have intentionally been studying our way through Exodus from the Old Testament, which Pastor Ashwin's kind of quarterbacking. And, uh, of course, we've been doing the book of Romans from the New Testament in order to enrich our understanding and, and an application of the whole counsel of God, like we're told to do in Acts 20. Well, after an extended time in Exodus this weekend, we're continuing our study in Romans, and so I'm going to invite you um, uh, to turn to Romans chapter 8, which many people believe is, is the greatest chapter of the whole Bible, and it's been just wonderful making our way through this chapter and just encourage you to follow along as, as um, uh, I just kind of give a brief summary of it because it's been a while since we've been in it. Um, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, he gives several principles of what it means to live in Christ or to live in the Spirit. And uh, we've looked at four principles uh, up to this point. First of all, to live in the Spirit means you are no longer motivated by a fear of condemnation but by a love of God and others. Verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation because as Romans chapter 3 and 5 tell us, Christ paid for our sins on the cross, and when we put our faith in him, he becomes one with us. And as a result, in the eternal realm, God sees us as uh, forgiven and righteous. It's called justification, and that is our position or our identity in Christ. Of course, we still live in the earthly realm. We live in the eternal realm, but we also live in the earthly realm, and therefore, we still got a lot of growing to do, which is called sanctification. And of course, that's the theme of Romans 6 to 8. But in the eternal realm, we are forgiven, we're righteous in the sight of God, and therefore we're no longer, we have no need to any longer be motivated by a fear of condemnation. Secondly, to live in the Spirit means you do not set your mind on the temporary things of life, but on the eternal things of God. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Setting your mind on something means that's what you take your cue from in life. It's what you're thinking about most of the time. It's what matters most to you. 
It's what makes your adrenaline flow. And then thirdly, in verse 9 to 11, these verses teach that living in the Spirit means that I live in total dependence on Jesus Christ rather than on my own ability to live a God-pleasing life. When you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit in your life, which means the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you and me. You just reflect on that for a moment. The Spirit lives in you, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And He will live the life of Christ through you. However, the Spirit is a gentleman, and He will not do what you don't want to do. And so if you want to experience victory over sin, if you want to live the full life that God wants for you and experience the faith adventures he has for you, then you will need to yield control of your life to him. In the same way Jesus lived in total dependence on his heavenly father during the years that he was here on earth. Which brings us to the fourth principle. Living in the spirit means you are convinced God uses all things that you surrender to him to accomplish his good purpose in your life. Look at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now we unpack this last time, but notice again that this verse does not say all things are good. No, there's a lot of bad things in this world, and there are a lot of things that happen to us that are not good and should not be celebrated. Neither does this verse say that everything will turn out okay for us in this life, which is one of the misconceptions some people have. You know, eventually it'll all turn out okay. Just hang in there. No, it says God will work out everything for our ultimate good which we may or may not see evidence of in this life. You see, you can't accurately understand verse 28, which we tend to focus on. It's a great verse. But you can't focus on 28 without also focusing on verse 29. So let's look at verse 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Let's look at this. Let's unpack this. Paul says, God foreknew us. In other words, from the beginning of time, God foreknew that you would be alive today. He created you. He called you by name and said, I want you to be my child. I want to spend forever with you. He knew you were going to be saved by his grace. But he didn't just foreknew you and leave it at that. No, in verse 30, Paul says, God 
called us to himself. In other words, he tries to get our attention by revealing himself to us in various ways. He tries to get our attention through his creation, the birth of a child. He tries to get our attention through the scriptures. He tries to get our attention through the life and testimony of other Christians. Tries to get our attention through circumstances and spiritual encounters with him. All for the purpose of us opening up our hearts, our minds to his reality. And also to his love, his grace, and his plans for our lives. He pours out his grace on us and he begins to draw us to himself. When we respond to his call, and that's important by the way, but when we respond to his call or to his grace by faith, Paul says God justifies us, meaning in the eternal realm, we are forgiven, cleansed, and given a position before him of being loved and accepted. And when God justifies us, we can be confident that he will also glorify us or take us to heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to be glorified, which means there will be no more sin, and we will be made perfect in soul and body, receiving a body made for an eternal existence. What an incredible day that will be when God glorifies us in heaven. Now let's go back to verse 29 and talk about this explosive word, predestined. Now the word predestined means to determine beforehand. So is this verse saying that God determines people's eternal destiny beforehand? In other words, that some people are going to go to heaven and some people are going to be, go to hell? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 makes it very clear that God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, which dispels the notion that God predestines people to go to hell or, for that matter, heaven. That is not his will at all. However, make no mistake, some people will reject God. And as a result, they will get exactly what they want. Eternity without God. Which sadly, will be in hell. But here's the thing. In the Bible, the word predestination is always used for believers only. It is never used in reference to unbelievers. So its focus is not on heaven or hell. And so what is verse 29 teaching then? Well, look at it again. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now notice Paul writes that God predestined those who love him for a purpose. We are predestined for a purpose. So what is his good purpose for us? That we would be conformed into the image of his son Jesus. In other words, the good purpose God wants to perform in your life and in my life is that we would be like Jesus. That's it. And what that means practically 
And we don't always like to hear this, but what it means practically is that even though God may not be the cause, he will use everything that happens to us, both good and bad, to accomplish one overarching purpose in our life. And that is to mold you and me into the image or the character of God. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed as a teenager in a diving accident and has now lived as a quadriplegic for more than 70 years. Hard to believe. And she was here many years ago and shared her story and, and just was such uh, an encouragement and blessing to us all. Now, even though for years she pleaded with God to heal her, and she sought out every healer she could, people with the gift of healing, and was prayed for by many. When she wasn't healed physically, rather than grow bitter at God and walk away from God, she leaned into God. She surrendered her life to God and allowed God to accomplish his ultimate purpose in her life. even while in a wheelchair. And as you know, she not only exudes the joy of the Lord in her life, but she's been used by the Lord to impact millions. And among the many profound things that she has written, she wrote this. When I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice, I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character-refining work he did in me and through me because of this wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair to hell. (laughs) Because it was only needed and it was only relevant because of the wreckage of sin in this world. You know, a lot of us say we live by faith, me included. But the moment we can't see or understand what God is doing, we sort of throw our hands up in the air, and we've all done it. And we say, God, are you even here? I mean, do you even know what I'm going through or what a loved one's going through? Do you even care? And we say we want to live by faith, but you see, we also want to understand why this bad thing is happening. But you see, that's not walking in faith. That's walking by sight. Faith means trusting God even when we can't see him. Faith means trusting God even when we don't understand when nothing makes sense. Faith means waiting patiently until that time, either in this life or the next, that we finally understand and we see clearly that it was all about becoming more like Jesus. And that God did use all things The good, yes, but also the bad 
even some of the ugly stuff for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. Now, I don't want to minimize pain and suffering in any way. I've gone through enough of it myself. But one implication of this teaching is that not one second of our suffering, our hurt, or our disappointment is wasted. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. John Piper has said this, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is it light in comparison to eternity and the glory we'll experience there, but every second of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism or slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It is doing something. And therefore, whatever you may be facing, don't lose heart. But take these truths here from Romans 8, and particularly the truths that we're learning from our study today, and preach them to yourself daily until your heart sings with the confidence that God is for you and not against you. Verse 26 tells us, the Spirit is praying the will of God perfectly over us. That God's good purpose will be accomplished in our lives. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus is interceding for us as well. Now, of course, we need to pray, and we need to pray for one another. But even if we don't pray perfectly, even if our faith is weak, we know that Holy Spirit and Jesus are interceding for us. That means everything. And it tells us that God is for us. And that leads to the fifth and the final principle of what it means to live in the Spirit. Living in the Spirit or in Christ means that I live every day with the unshakable confidence that God is for me and not against me. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, let me ask you, do you live your Christian life believing that God is for you and not against you? As you go throughout your day, and let's say that you're hit with a disappointment or some kind of hardship, is the first thing that comes to your mind, well, I don't know what this is all about, but I believe there is a good reason for this because God is for me? Is that the first thought that comes to mind? Or do you find yourself thinking, oh no, this is happening because God's upset with me again. He's punishing me again for something I'm doing wrong or have done wrong. Paul says you'll never live in victory 
You'll never know what it means to live in the Spirit unless you have an unshakable confidence that God is for you and not against you. Now that means we're going to have to live by faith and not by sight. Living by faith means you choose to see everything that happens to you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, from God's eternal perspective rather than from your limited earthly perspective. Now the reality is, you know, these words are easily said, but not always so easily lived. And again, I'm speaking from experience. And Paul understands that. And so in the remaining verses of chapter 8, like a lawyer wrapping up his closing arguments, he presents a powerful case to convince us again that God is for us and that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God. In his mind, he remembers the issues and the doubts that people have raised that can get in the way of us living in the Spirit. And so he addresses them one at a time. And in doing so, he spells out what it means to live in the Spirit when we're overwhelmed with doubts and with fears. First of all, living in the Spirit means I have an unshakable confidence in God's power and protection. In verse 31, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, when our boys were young, one afternoon, all four of them charged through our front door, practically fell over each other as they were coming in, and they were yelling, Dad, Dad, can you please come here? Hurry, hurry. Well, I bolted up the stairs from the basement, concerned that someone was badly hurt. Well, thankfully, no one was hurt, but the reason they raced to, to our home and raced into the front part of our home was because a teenager about twice their size who they'd undoubtedly upset in some way over at the park chased after them, likely with the intent of laying a little bruising on them. And he came right into our yard and but then when I stepped outside and I said, you know, uh, is there a problem? He quickly turned and walked away. But you see, the boys raced home and they called for me because they felt safe and secure around me. See, at that time, my boys had this misguided notion that I was the strongest man alive. Now, that didn't last very long. But I thoroughly enjoyed that season of parenting. I mean, what parent doesn't like their kids thinking that they're all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present? Let's face it, parenting becomes much harder the day your kids realize how weak and flawed you are. But the bottom line is for a season, a very short season, I might add. Anytime I was around my boys, they felt safe. Not because there was no danger, but because they assumed that their dad was bigger and stronger than the dangers they faced. They believed dad was for them 
And that as long as their dad was for them and with them, they had nothing to fear. And this is what Paul is saying here. If Almighty God, the creator of the universe, is for us, why are we sweating over those things we believe is against us? Why are we losing sleep? Why are we filled with fear and anxiety about our future, about our country? Now, Paul's not saying here that no one will ever oppose us. I mean, I'm sure many of you are facing all kinds of opposition, like a bad boss, an addiction, health issues, a troubled marriage, difficult kids. And some of you are very concerned about how the media and the educational system are impacting your children and your youth. Others of you are really struggling with the cultural forces and government legislation that seems intent on taking away rights and freedoms that we hold sacred and dear. And many are fearful of what the future holds for them and their children. And that's understandable to a degree. The question is, do we honestly believe that our God doesn't know what's going on? And do we believe that God is greater than what concerns us today? Friends, even if everything seems to be spinning out of control, Christ's followers who are living in the Spirit, they do not cave into fear or try to isolate or protect themselves from all of the dangers no, they believe that our all-powerful God is in control and that we can totally trust him, even when it seems the storm clouds are totally surrounding us. Christ followers who live in the Spirit believe to the core of their being that if God is for us, we can stay focused on Jesus. We can give our lives to the mission that Jesus has called us to, and we can trust him with our future. We can trust them with the uncertainties of life. And so first of all, living in the Spirit means I have an unshakable confidence in God's power and protection. Furthermore, living in the Spirit means I have an unshakable confidence not only in God's power and protection, but also in His provision. Let's face it, we often wonder whether God will provide everything we need. I mean, don't we all find ourselves at times thinking about scenarios, especially the negative scenarios of what might happen to us or what might happen to one of our loved ones, like a life-changing medical prognosis, a life-changing injury or failure, loss of employment? And Paul answers and says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul writes, if, if God gave up his son to die for us on the cross in order to resolve the greatest need that we have, which is our spiritual need to be in right relationship with God, if he did that, why would, we, why would he now not provide us with the things we need to do what he calls us to do? 
I mean, for example, if someone gives you a costly watch, let's say a Rolex, do you think he's going to object when you ask him for the box that it goes in? Or if a mother's willing to give up her baby for adoption, do you think she will object if you ask for the, for the baby's clothes too? It's no different in the spiritual realm. If God has already given us the most priceless and the most costly gift of his son, do you really think that God's going to withhold anything that we need to live for him? Church, God is for you. He doesn't just want to save you from your sins. He does want to bless you so that you can be a blessing. He wants to use, uh, he wants you to experience life to the full. And therefore, he's going to provide what you need. Not necessarily what you want, but what you need. And please note this. If he doesn't provide all your wants, you must trust him that he has a good reason, whether you know what that reason is or not. And watch your heart, friend. Don't get bitter at God. Don't get upset with others because he never promised to meet all of your wants. And then thirdly, living in the Spirit means I have an unshakable confidence in God's pardon. My observation is that one of the greatest struggles that Christians have is believing that they are loved, accepted, and totally forgiven by the Lord. This never-ending struggle reminds me of a story that Bob George tells about a man named Stuart. Stuart was, was responsible for the death of 18-year-old Susan in an auto accident. Stuart was drunk, and he plowed into her car on New Year's uh, morning, killing her instantly. He was convicted of manslaughter and drunken driving. And on top of his criminal trial, Susan's family filed a civil suit against him and won. But they requested an unusual and creative judgment. Though they had originally sued Stewart for $1.5 million, they settled for $936. However, those $936 were to be paid in a specific way. Each Friday, the day that Susan died, Stewart was to make out a check in her name for $1 and mail it to the family. The $936 were to be paid $1 per week for 18 years, one for each week of Susan's life. Susan's family wanted Stewart to remember what he had done. Well, at first, Stewart was relieved. But with each passing week, this required ritual began to wear at him to the point of depression. Because every Friday, he was reminded that he was responsible for that young woman's death. Writing her name on a check became more and more painful until he stopped writing them. The family went back to court to force him to continue. Four times over the next eight years, Stewart stopped paying. And four times he was forced to start over again by court order. 
Stuart was so haunted and tormented that he went to court offering to pay more than asked by pleading to have the payments stop. The family refused. Now, church, this story is a picture of the struggle that many Christians have within themselves in their relationship with God. And I don't want to minimize the crime that Stuart committed or the deep hurt that Susan's family suffered. It's a terrible thing that he did, and there's something in all of us that says he deserves to pay for what he did the rest of his life. But see, that's not the issue I want to address in this message. What I want to look at is what life without grace looks like. As long as steward is required to remember his crime and to continue to pay a weekly debt to Susan's family, what do you think the chances are that he will ever live a normal and a productive life and be able to have healthy relationships? Not much of a chance as far as I'm concerned. What do you think the chances are that he could ever develop a positive relationship with Susan's family? None. Zippo. He'll want to stay a million miles away from that family. Why? Because you see, you cannot enjoy a close relationship with someone when guilt and condemnation stands between you. Let that sink in. You cannot have a close relationship with someone when guilt and condemnation stands between you. Now here's the thing. Many people do not grow in their relationship with the Lord for the same reason. Many people do not grow in their relationship with family members and others for the same reason. They're dealing with God on the same basis as Stuart is with Susan's family. They believe there is still unpaid debt between them and God and that he must therefore be angry with them. And as a result, they avoid him. Well, if you've been following with us in our study of Romans 6 to 8, you know Paul essentially says, unless you embrace by faith and you rest in the truth that in the eternal realm you are forgiven and justified because Jesus paid for it all on the cross. You're going to be so burdened trying to pay off your debt and to atone for your failures and sin that you'll never experience the awesome, life-changing reality of the resurrection, nor will you enjoy a personal friendship with Jesus. You just won't. You see, under the Old Covenant, that's the Old Testament that was written to the nation of Israel. In the Old Covenant, forgiveness was offered on an up-to-date basis. And that's why sacrifices had to be repeated endlessly, like Stuart's dollar-a-week payments. The Old Testament worshipers had to make continued offerings for their guilt 
Nowhere in the Old Covenant do you find a sacrifice that offers cleansing for tomorrow's sins as well. That is until Jesus came and did it all. Look at what Hebrews 10.11 says. Day after day, every Old Covenant priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. <coughs> but when this priest, Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ has dealt with sins once and for all while the Old Testament priests are standing continually offering sacrifices Jesus is seated why because the work is done he paid for it all on the cross no more payments now I share all that background to say this Satan will try to accuse you and other people may try to condemn you but Jesus is the one who justified you, who loves you, and totally accepts you. Even though you will still sin, you're still going to make mistakes in life. The judgment of those sins has already been paid in full by Jesus. And so in the eternal realm, you are forgiven, righteous, and complete in Christ. And that is why in verse 33 and 34, Paul asks, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. <coughs> His argument is that no prosecution can succeed since God is our judge and he's already justified us through Christ our sin was already judged the penalty paid in full and all charges have been dropped so who can accuse us Paul says if you feel condemned it isn't God that's condemning you. God justified you in Christ. He is for you. Satan may accuse you. Others may condemn you. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is for you. So here's the thing. If you are sure that God accepted you, why would you be concerned about anyone else's approval? You see, some people believe the only way that they can have worth is when they reach some standard of excellence. And that standard is usually based on how they compare with someone else. And so in order to be worthy, they believe they have to reach a level of success in some area of endeavor or achieve some moral standard or be a certain kind of person if they don't obtain that standard they believe they have no worth but you see Romans has clearly taught that your worth 
is not based on how good you are or how much you've achieved. You have worth because of what God says about you. As one commentator put it, your identity is established by what the most important person in your life thinks about you. I want to repeat that. Your identity, your sense of worth is based on what the most important person in your life thinks about you. Now, if that person is you, or if that person is someone else whose approval and whose opinion you crave for and live for, then you're always going to struggle with feelings of guilt or disapproval no matter what God says or what God has done for you. Make no mistake, you will never live in freedom until you establish Jesus as the most important person in your life and you surrender your life completely to him and you declare in faith the words of the songwriter, I am who you say I am. Which leads me to a final truth that Paul gives here. Living in the Spirit means I have an unshakable confidence in God's presence. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We know that Paul had experienced all these hardships and sufferings. He even quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, where the psalmist laments Israel's defeat at the hands of pagan nations. And the psalmist wonders if God's forsaken them. But Paul dispels that here in Romans 8, verse 37. As Paul nears the end of his exhortation, I picture him speaking loudly with great passion. (laughs) And so if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand right now. I'm going to invite you to join me in reading these last verses of Romans 8 together. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, not anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Thank the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, we are conquerors. In fact, we are more than conquerors, says Paul. Because regardless of what we may be facing, there is no person, there is no life circumstance that can separate us from the love and the presence of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are who God says we are. The one who saved us is greater than the one who opposes us. And therefore, we are more than conquerors over what concerns us today. 
You are greater than in Christ than your situation in life. Your life is not defined by your circumstances, as hard as they may be. Your life is defined by who you are in Christ. You are who He says you are. And I ask you, who is there who can condemn you, discourage you, disrespect you, marginalize you? And what is there to fear or worry about? Regardless of what you're facing in life, remember, inner peace is found not in what you feel, but what you know. You may not know how it's all going to work out, but you know the God who will work it out for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And the God we know is not only the Lord God Almighty, but the God who loves us with an everlasting love and the God who is for us. Would you just bow your head, close your eyes for a moment. Friend, what battle do you face week in and week out? What situation is causing you to be discouraged and defeated? Making you feel that you just can't do this anymore. Well, God wants to use that situation to accomplish His good purpose in your life, to grow your faith to make you more like Jesus. He will empower you. He will give you the strength not only to endure, but to conquer, to live victoriously, even while facing your challenging circumstances. But it's going to require for you to get your eyes off your circumstance and onto the Lord, trusting Him and surrendering your life and the outcome to Him. So take a moment now and just ask the Lord, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what are you asking me to do about it? What next step, Lord, are you asking me to take?